Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. Most of our employees are going to be between 18 and 24, and then we have a big age gap, and then it goes 55 and over. So we do have a large number of retirees that come in and work for us, and all of our parks almost have RV spots available too, so we do have quite a few RV spots available. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Graydon, and this is episode number 103, Alternative Jobs in Our National Parks. Today, I'm going to be talking with Wendy Dodd. Wendy has been working in Yellowstone National Park for 12 years. She also participated recently in the Project Upland, Her Upland Grouse Camp, and she's an active member in BHA, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, and she's also a regional rep for the Goat Alliance. And then I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention she is co-owner of Bella's Bones, which we will be getting into towards the end of the episode. We're going to be talking about what it's like to work in national parks, the different jobs that are available, and guess what? It's not just park rangers. We're going to talk about how all that sort of mixes together, and then also her personal conservation work and why she's choosing to do it. So let's just dive right into it, and let's meet Wendy. All right, on the line today, Wendy Dodd. Wendy, how are you doing today? I am doing well. That's great to hear. I want to thank you first for joining me. Um, I don't always thank people when they first come on. We tend to go right into the conversation, but I want to thank you because um, this actually, this whole episode started because you reached out to me uh, after you heard me on another podcast, uh, the Average Conservationist podcast. So um, thanks for reaching out. Uh, and it really drew my attention to something that we're going to talk about that once, once my attention was drawn to it, it made sense. Um, but it's not something that I had really thought about. And that's sort of working in national parks in various ways. So we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but first, let I went through with the introduction uh, that everyone heard and sort of gave a little bit of your background. Um, and you do a lot of conservation work and a lot of different stuff. But the first thing I want to talk about is that you participated in uh, Project Upland's Her Upland Grouse Camp. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, we went last week up by Missoula, Montana, and there was probably about 17 women that were all from around, all over the country. Um, we had quite a few women from Montana, but Tennessee, a couple from Wisconsin, Colorado, um, I think there was somebody that was supposed to come from Florida, but their flights got delayed. So it was the first time they had done it, but it, it was tremendous. I think we had all different skill levels, beginner to advanced, and um, everybody got a little time to shoot, about a half a day of shooting instruction. Um, and then if you brought your dog with you, you got a half a day of bird dog training um, with a trainer. 
and it was it was it was beneficial. We had a wildlife biologist come in and talk about grouse habitat and just the different grouse species. We had a veterinary come in and talk about um, you know pet health in the field and emergencies, and she had some traps, so we were able to play with some traps. So good stuff. I mean, so I'm the type of person where anytime someone's like, hey. You know, I'm interested in hunting, or I've been hunting a couple times, but I'd like to go out with you. Or, hey, I've been hunting all my life. You know, do you want to hunt together? Like, I'm that kind of guy that's like, yeah, like I'm always looking for new hunting partners. Um, and you know, I, I mean, I'm not part of the um, part of the old boys club where it, you know I'm not going to hunt with women or anything like that. Like, I would gladly go with anyone of any race, creed, gender does not matter to me. Um, do you feel like? this was a little bit easier for them to be for yourself as a woman being with just a group of women and not having really any guys around to be macho. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> it was, it was pretty funny because we did get a survey at the end and that was one of the questions is did the, the women's only group, was it beneficial? And, and I say, yes. And, and I am someone who probably, I would have been on the fence for it about it. But even preparing for it, I found my husband was like, do, do you have this? Do you have this? You know, and I was like, I got it. Like, I got it. <laughs> I'm good. But um, yeah, I think it was just, it's, um, I think, especially for somebody who's beginning, um, it was very beneficial for a few of them to just have, I think, people that that understood what they were going through, um, you know, some it's, it's not easy killing something. And, and some of them brought that up. Like, how am I going to feel about it? You know, I, I get distressed when my chicken dies, am I going to be able to do this? And it, so I think it's a very welcoming community when you're in this, that type of forum and easy for people to ask questions like that. So it's more about like the connection. It's like an easier build of connection with someone that maybe grew up similarly to you face some of the same challenges and, and has similar mindsets? I think so. And also just some people's confidence level. I mean, there are, there are people that have been hunting a long time and I think their confidence level comes through um, when talking to people like that. And I think just having it be another woman um, is, is helpful for them. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me. Um, you know, you don't have, uh, quite as much mansplaining going on, I'm sure, (laughs) (laughs) which I'll say, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm guilty of that just as much as, as anyone else. Um, so yeah, I, I think this, this is great stuff. I love hearing, um, you know, the, the stories of people just experiencing things in, in new and in different ways and, um, being able to, as, as you said, sort of let their confidence level, you know, show itself. Um, Mm -hmm. so that's great. Okay. So let's, that, that is great stuff. I love hearing this. Um, let's talk a little bit about working in national parks. So you've been working in and around Yellowstone for the last 12 years. Can you just sort of give your history? How did you start working in Yellowstone? Wow. Um, So I came out to Yellowstone when I graduated from college. So I came out as part of an internship to work in the employee recreation program in Yellowstone. 
1995. Um, so I worked in the park for a couple of years, um, mostly in the employee recreation department. And then I left for about 10 years. I moved back to Michigan. That's where I grew up. Um, and then, yeah, it's just the West is a hard place to leave once you're out here and you have this exposure to uh, these vast landscapes and public land and just really missed living out here. And I had an opportunity to come back and work in the park and I took it and I've been back here for about 12 years working. So what are you doing now? So the whole time I have worked for the Zantara Travel Collection. So name has changed a little bit since 1995, but virtually the same company. So currently, um, I am the talent partnerships manager. Um, I work out of our corporate office in Denver, but the Zantara Travel Collection runs the concessions for a lot of our national parks. So we're running the hotels, the restaurants, retail establishments. Um, I spent about 12 years in Yellowstone as the hiring and recruiting operations. And then just within the last year, I transitioned over to our corporate office. So I work with um, some of our other parks like the Grand Canyon, um, Glacier, Mount Rushmore, Zion. Right, but so, I do part, go ahead. So I'm just, I just want to make, make sure we're, we're being very clear on this. Uh, so when you're hiring people or reaching out to try to find people to fill positions um, in the concessions aspect, it's one, it's not just like, you know, a, a shack on the side of the road selling um, <laughs> you know, nacho chips and things like that. Like these are right. like full-fledged restaurants and hotels. Um, and, and that person, while they might be working within the national park boundaries, isn't actually working for, you know, the federal government where they're working for the company that you're working for, correct? Correct. So we operate under a contract with the park service and those are, a, that's a bid process. So we bid on them. So the last, I'm very familiar with the Yellowstone process. So we are probably in about year six or seven of a 20 year contract in Yellowstone. And yeah, so we are running the concessions in like the old faithful Inn, El Tavar restaurant in the Grand Canyon, um, some pretty iconic um, restaurants and hotels. Okay, cool. Oh, 20 years. That's, that's a long time. And I feel like that you would want long contracts like that just to sort of keep um, sort of the continuity, right. Over a longer spirit, you know, span of time, you don't want it to be changing, you know, who's running it every year or two years. Um, Correct. So that, that would make sense. Okay, cool. So, I mean, how does, how does that work? How do, if, I mean, obviously if you're reaching out to someone, um, or like, as you reached out to me to say like, Hey, if you have any students that are interested, send them my way, let them know about this opportunity. But if, you know, if my, if one of my students is interested, how does that all work? I mean, they're, you know, I'm in Pennsylvania. My students are in Pennsylvania <laughs> to go to Yellowstone. Like that's, you know, a pretty big <laughs> commitment. You know, like there's right. some details that they're going to need to know. So how, how does that work? Yeah. So I always, I always like to try to give people a scope of what um, the operation is. So we hire in Yellowstone about 4,000 seasonal employees every summer. So if we are fully staffed during the summer, we're looking at having about 2,700 employees, but the 4,000 comes into play with just piecing together 
kind of the spring and fall seasons. So we hire a lot of college students um, that may come out May to August, but then we open some things in April and then we close in October. So there's kind of those shoulder seasons, we call them, that we also look to fill. So we're really, it's a big jigsaw puzzle. Um, we don't pay for transportation out here. Um, we do provide housing and meals. Um, it's a small fee that they deduct, but um, it's pretty reasonable. But if you fly or you take a Greyhound bus out here, we do have people, we do have transportation that's provided to um, Yellowstone from Bozeman, Montana. But it's a, it's a big process getting everybody out here, getting them scheduled to come in. And um, when, when we're talking about like a large employee arrival day might be for like the Old Faithful Inn food and beverage, and we may have you know, 180 people coming in um, on that day to start work. So we may take three buses to Bozeman to pick people up. And then there are people that are driving in too. And so everybody comes into um, the human resources office in Gardner, Montana. We process people, they get a uniform and we send them out to Old Faithful to get housing assignments and start their training. So when you're saying housings, are they living within the national park boundary? They do. Um, pretty much every park that we operate in, with the exception of Rocky Mountain and Mount Rushmore, have, has lodging facilities inside the park. Um, Rocky Mountain is in Estes Park and Mount Rushmore is right next to it. But yeah, we have, um, you know, the Old Faithful area is, you know, a good hour and a half, two hours from West Yellowstone. And so we do provide dormitory housing throughout the parks. Man, talk about talk about wonderful digs to be living in. Uh, you know, that would be just tremendous scenery to be waking up to every single morning. It's the best backyard you'll ever have. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. <laughs> okay, so um, so you mentioned college students. Um, mm -hmm. Is it only college students, or I mean, even I, I understand seasonal work. A lot of times, you know, like myself, I have a family. I'm not going to be able to really do seasonal work, but like retirees or someone that's just sort of oh, yeah. has some wanderlust. I mean, do you have more than just college students applying? We do. And so, you know, most of our, most of our employees are going to be between 18 and 24. And then we have a big age gap and then it goes 55 and over. So we do have a large number of retirees that come in and work for us and all of our parks almost have RV spots available too. So we do have quite a few RV spots available in Yellowstone, Glacier has some, um, Grand Canyon and Death Valley have some RV spots. So we do have a large number of RVers that do come in and work for us that are retirees. Um, we also have a program that we started probably three years ago for, it's the target demographic certainly is retirees because it's part-time. So you can come in, um, not all of our operation is open, so we have a little additional housing. So we started a part-time program. You have to work 20 hours per week. Um, that has been highly popular with retirees because they get to come and they spend some time in the park. Um, it's a six week, so it's April to the end of May. And then we do it again in the fall, September and October. And that kind of helps us fill that gap for our college students. So um, when we were kind of short staffed, so, but yeah, very popular. I think Yellowstone hand close to 300 
helping, we call it the Helping Hands program. Um, they handed close to 300 people this fall. Oh man, I hope that program continues. Look out, uh, I, uh, when <laughs> I retire, I have a feeling, especially in the fall, maybe get a little hunting in when I'm only working part-time uh, outside of the national park boundary, of course. Right. Um, all right, so what, I mean, what kind of jobs? You mentioned like up to 4,000 people. I mean, that's a lot of people. So what kind of different jobs so a lot of what we, yeah, a lot of what we do is going to be hospitality related. So we're looking for housekeepers and kitchen crew. But on top of that, I mean, whew, we have Wranglers, um, you know, the, the Grand Canyon, when they talk about the mule pack trips down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, um, we're hiring the mule packers, um, trail crew. Um, you could be a cook down there at the bottom of the Grand Canyon at Phantom Ranch. Um, we also do a lot of the maintenance in the park. So part of our contract will be, we have to maintain certain facilities. So we also hire a lot of maintenance crew. We have a historic preservation crew that works closely on like, you know, all those logs on the Old Faithful Inn. You know, we're, we're charged with taking care of all of that. So we also have to maintain that. So we have a pretty big crew there. Um, but then, you know, we've got accountants, we've got human resources. I mean, we have we kind of IT people. Um, we, we pretty much have almost every job you could think of. <laughs> Man, that, that's great because that just, in my mind, gives so many people an option to be able to get out and experience the West and get paid a little bit while they're out there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't, you know, I know that, you know, I'm a culinary teacher. You reached out to me because I'm a culinary teacher. Uh, and like you said, a lot of your jobs are hospitality, so that fits, but, um, you know, you don't have to be a cook. You don't have to uh, want to work in hospitality. You could, like you said, maintenance, um, you know, man, I, my, when my dad listens to this episode, um, as an electrician, <laughs> I have a feeling. <laughs> um, and, and, at, and that really, you know, when we talked about the retirees, we really look for a lot of our maintenance staff is seasonal. Um, so we found, you know, a lot of these like Midwestern retired, um, worked in a factory for like boiler techs and stuff. I mean, a lot of our facilities are older, so we're looking at some old boilers. Um, we're slowly replacing some of those, but yeah, anything like that, electricians, plumbers. Man, I, this, this is just getting better and better for my retirement. <laughs> I don't know that my wife is going to be happy with that, but, um, you know, me being away for that amount of time, but who knows, maybe we can just, uh, retire together and, um, she can just relax while I work. Um, I think she'd probably be happy with that. Um, all right. So how, how does this work for, um, for the average person, like, do they, do you see this, the same college students coming back for multiple years? Do you see the same retirees coming back for multiple years? I mean, obviously there's going to be a certain amount of turnover. As you mentioned, there's an age gap in there. So, um, you know, once the college kids decide to get a real career going, that's, you know, year long and not seasonal, but um, do you find that you get a lot of returners coming back? We do probably about 35 to 40 percent of our staff are returners and we also do you know not all of our parks are seasonal so some um, Death Valley and Grand Canyon are open year-round Zion also is open year-round so we do have some some employees from Yellowstone or Glacier that will transfer to some of those parks in the winter and Yellowstone does have a very small winter season um, 
pretty, we go from, you know, the 4,000 to 300. So it's really small for the winter, but we, we do have some winter opportunities. And there is a whole group of people that really do. They travel around, they work some of these seasonal jobs. They may go, you know, south um, in the winter. Um, in the summers, we do have a large number of international employees that work in our parks too. Um, some of the bridge students, they're university students overseas. We usually, it depends on the park, but about 10 to 20% might maybe. Um, in Yellowstone, we're probably around that 10 or 15% of our employee population. Um, and, and these students are coming in usually the fall or the spring, depending on their school dates. So we use them a little bit too to fill that gap. So you'll meet people from all over the world. And so our employees often have a lot of um, couch surfing that they do afterwards. I mean, we've got, you know, you get that little break between seasons, six to eight weeks between that summer and winter season. So a lot of them will travel. I mean, they may go, we've got, you know, students coming from Thailand, we've had quite a few students or employees go over to Thailand to visit other employees. So <laughs> um, Ecuador is a big one too, where people will go down to Ecuador to visit some students that work for us and, and spend some time down there. So it's a great way, you know, if you're, you know, not sure what you want to do in life or what you want to do is travel. It's a, it's a great way to, to travel and, and just experience some stuff. And, you know, I think back to my, uh, some of my trips out West, you know, whenever I uh, was able to go to Idaho and, and Colorado and Montana and the amount of sort of wonder, I'm sure that was on my face as I'm looking at the landscapes that are so vastly different than Eastern landscapes. I can only imagine what these international students that are coming in, like th what's going through their minds as they're seeing those landscapes and the fact that we've set aside these, you know, thousands and thousands of acres where we're not going to develop it, that we're just going to let the animals, you know, do their thing and, um, you know, let this be a wild space. I mean, I, I can only imagine what, what's going through their minds, right? <laughs> yeah, so um, it's kind of one of those sad things, too, where um, it's, it's a weird thing that I get to travel to some of these countries we do. Um, if, if we're hiring an, a large enough group of students in some of the countries, we work through an agency here in the United States that does exchange between countries. So when you have American students that go overseas to study, it's the same agency. So they're kind of transferring students back and forth. So we work through them. Um, and there's a few different agencies that we work with. But um, if we're hiring more than usually 25 students, we will go to the country to do interviews in person. So I've, I've been to numerous countries, but in, in particular, you talk to these Chinese students. And when you ask them, you know, why do you want to come to Yellowstone or work? And a lot of them, I've had this a lot where they're like, I want to see stars. They've never seen stars because of all the lights. That that's a good point. That's a very that's good point. That's just like you're like, oh wow! I didn't, you know, you don't think about it, but they're like, they get excited. They're like, I want to go see stars. <laughs> yeah, and and as you know, as sad as that is, that there are people out there that don't get to see, you know, stars because of light pollution. Um, that's got to make you feel a little 
a little good that you're giving them that opportunity as well or providing yeah. that opportunity. We had, um, we had a student from Ecuador that worked for us for a couple of summers and she was my um, assistant when I went down to Ecuador to hire and we were talking and she was doing work with uh, Ecuadorian government on um, their national parks. And so she, and it was really interesting. She was, she was telling me all about it, but she took a lot of what she learned here in Yellowstone and was trying to incorporate it there. And her, she had an environmental degree that she was getting. So she was telling me um, all about her work and it was incredible. So yeah, I think that's just that mutual, like, it, Yellowstone in particular, obviously we're in a lot of the national parks, but um, these students that are coming into Yellowstone, I mean, this is like the first national park. And when they come here, they're pretty honored to be here. And it's pretty, pretty special that they get to spend that time in the park. I mean, they get out and they hike and they just, a lot of them just don't have these opportunities in their country, or if they do, they don't know about them or they haven't participated in them and it just is really really eye-opening for them that, that that's great uh, now for, i tend to find as i as i talk to a bunch of different people um throughout these you know 100 plus episodes i've done um, that anyone that's working some in some form of the outdoor industry whether that's through conservation or through national parks or research uh, they all had something previously in their life that has sort of like drawn them into that. Uh, so what is it for you? Like, well, obviously, you know, you're working for this company that's contracted through national parks. You, you're from Michigan. I know Michigan is a big outdoor state. Um, is there something in particular or just like a, maybe something that happened yearly or monthly or something that just sort of happened over and over that sort of gave you that pull to want to work in the outdoors? Wow. Um, you know, growing up, I probably grew up a lot like you, where I just had a really outdoor family. Um, I know you know a little bit about Michigan, but, you know, my grandfather had a cabin up north that we would go up to. And, you know, they always were hunting. And we, you know, I fished a lot with my dad. I really didn't take up hunting until later in life. I always can because the opportunity was always there, but I never really embraced it. Um, he's probably wondering why that was, but, um, but I went fishing. I always enjoyed fishing. So I go fishing with him a lot. And when I was in middle school, we came out here and I can remember being, you know, my mom says I was miserable. Um, <laughs> But it was a quick family trip from Michigan to Yellowstone in the family camper. Um, you know, a hundred things went wrong during the trip. There was a tornado, the camper fell apart. Um, we were the typical tourist, you know, June in Yellowstone, shorts and t-shirts and it snowed. Um, spent a night in a hotel because it was too cold to camp. So yeah, everything like that. But I can remember also being like, huh, this is kind of cool. And then, you know, you're graduating from college and you're sitting there going, well, what am I going to do with my life? Um, and I came out here for my internship and just really um, embraced this lifestyle. It's just a little different and people are go-getters um, here. You know, you're, um, you're going out and you're hiking for your weekends or you're fishing, you're, you're doing something. And it's just a, it's a different lifestyle for sure. 
Yeah, sounds to me like you're uh, the typical middle schooler. Everyone thinks, you know, you're <laughs> you're miserable, Correct. even though deep down inside, you're like, this is awesome, but I can't. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we were all there. We were all there at yeah. some point. Uh, but really, I mean, your personal connection to the outdoors really, from what I've known a little bit about you, it, it's deeper than just your job. I mean, you're you're active in conservation organizations. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you're, you know, you're involved with BHA, you're involved with Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, um, you know, you're involved with the Goat Alliance. So, I mean, what is it about those organizations that you're like, yeah, this is, this is why I support their work? Right. You know, probably I just started with the Goat Alliance, but really, you know, backcountry hunters and anglers is just, I mean, public lands is huge. I think access is key to a lot of our world's issues <laughs> um, um, from, from just getting people outside to that nature connectivity, whether it's, I mean, you can go to a big city and if there's a nice park or there's bike trails, I mean, there's just a different feel to having, and, and it makes a city livable to me if there's, you know, the, that open space um, and just ways to get out and move, I think are, are key. So, I, you know, I really like the mission of backcountry hunters and anglers in, in just trying to maintain our access to public lands um, is huge. And, and I don't think people understand how often that is threatened. Um, in their daily lives. Um, and I know you're working, you know, kind of just that urban sprawl stuff. So yeah, I think just, just that access point um, is huge in, in keeping that there. Um, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, I think all of these conservation groups do good work. Um, and, and I love, you know, I think it's Randy Newberg says this, if you're, if you're looking for one that you're going to believe in 100%, you're, you're never going to find it. So I think all these groups do great work um, and, and none of them really are like, I wouldn't join. So I think they're all doing great work. Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, I'm here, I'm in Park County, Montana. It's the, there's elk everywhere. Um, they needed help every year with the banquet. So I signed up and so I've been working with them and they've really, I mean, I use, a, there's a few large tracts of public land here that were donated by Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. So I feel like I should give back. I mean, I appreciate that they've done that. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time on that at land that they've um, purchased and given to the federal government. So I wanna, I wanna give back. And then, yeah, recently I became the regional rep for the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance and they're a newer organization. And I felt that I probably had a little bit to offer them just with my work history um, and then just my interest. I mean, goats live in some incredible country and we've, and I love their citizen science kind of angle on stuff. We've done a couple of goat counts with them. Um, always great, it's cool to get up there. Um, gosh, before I there was probably the Rocky Mountain Goat Alliance, we did a backpacking trip in and we were in an area and there must have been, I mean, we probably saw 50 goats. It was incredible. But those babies, like jumping around on the side of cliffs was just <laughs> incredible. Like you're like, oh my goodness. But yeah, 
we woke up and turned around. There was a goat right behind us in camp looking at us. And yeah, just, just some cool country when you get up in there where those goats live. And, and the fact that they can live up there is just incredible. Yeah, I, I love I love hearing anyone that's involved with BHA, you know, I, I, and I really like that you mentioned how, you know, public land access and public land itself is under constant attack. You know, a, a lot of people and myself included really sort of woke up to the attack of public lands um, back in uh, China. It came, I think it might have been 2016 um, when the random house uh, house representatives guy from Utah, I can't remember his name now, um, you know, the whole suggestion of like selling the, the federal land to the states to let them manage it and do what they want with it, right? That was the big attack that awoke that woke a lot of people up. Um, but it's not always those big attacks, you know, I've tried to keep up with it since then. And it's, it's constant attacks all the time, like little, little things, you know, um, yeah. and even just something as simple as, hey, we have this, you know, 5,000 uh, acre tract of federally owned land, but you can't access it because there's private land all around it. And, you, you know, I own it, but I can't get there unless I have a helicopter. Um, right. you know, so just even little things like that, um, you know, are things that we need to be sort of fighting for and, and trying to figure out how we can, you know, improve access and, and everything, as you said. Um, and uh, I got to say, I love that you brought up Randy Newberg's quote. Uh, he, he's definitely <laughs> one of my favorites, you know, it, he's right. Quotes. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, he's right. You, you can't find that one perfect organization, right? Um, right? But, you know, when I look at it, as you said, all these organizations do great work. Um, so I actually just recently totaled it up and, and I'm an, I'm a member of 14 different, uh, <laughs> conservation organizations, right? Um, right. I, I'm only active in a few of them, right? Um, right. but I feel that it's important to pay my, you know, $35 every year for them, um, just so that they can have one more person, you know, one more number. So when they go to, uh, a Senator or a representative and say, look, we have these, 30,000 people, you know, mm -hmm. I can be counted as one of those 30,000 people, you know, even if I'm not actively giving involved locally, um, you know, it's hard for me to really give back locally for Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, uh, because yes, we do have elk in Pennsylvania, but, um, you know, Pennsylvania elk aren't really high on the radar for, for RMEF. Um, you know, it's still being a part of that and just giving them that extra person to sort of have a little bit more leverage in those conversations. Um, so that, that's great. I love hearing other people's conservation work. I, I think that's awesome. Uh, but there's one more thing we got to talk about and that is Bella's bones. Uh, tell us, tell everyone a little bit about Bella's bones. Well, it's mostly my husband's business, but I help him out quite a bit with it. So we have a dog, a chocolate lab named Bella. She is still with us. She's 13 and a half. So she's She's still upright, but when she was a puppy, we got her from some people free um, when she was about 10 months old, and she was, um, she was really good for about two weeks, and then as she started to get out and hike and move, I was like, oh, this isn't the dog we picked up, and so we always joke that she probably spent a lot of time on the couch, but she really needed a job. I mean, she was, boy, she had personality, and she was ready to go. 
So um, we, hadn't, we had only been back in Montana for maybe a year and a half and we had lost our chocolate lab who, um, who was almost 12 at the time. But anyway, Bella, um, yeah, my husband kind of started to look for antlers a little bit. And then he's like, you know, he started to teach her, like he took her out a few times and she picked up on it like, like that. I mean, she was, I like this and, and she was, she was good at it. I mean, she, I have been around her when she has dug them up out of the ground before she, you would be missing her and you'd finally see her walking backwards up a hill, dragging a big antler. Um, and she'd drop it off and turn around and run down and go find the other one, you know? So she's pretty good at it. So we started to, um, what, what else she's good at is getting injured. So she had three knee surgeries. She's been bitten by a rattlesnake. She's hanging abscess cheat grass. And so it was kind of our joke that we were going to start selling antlers um, to pay for all her surgeries, which I don't think we could ever sell enough, but um, <laughs> she, so we do, we cut up some chews for antlers. Um, we also have started making some other things. So I make some earrings. Um, Clark makes some bottle stoppers, um, some bottle openers, and he has been working for the park service for the last several years. And this was the first year he took the summer off um, to kind of work on it a little bit more, but he's been going to some farmer's markets and, and doing some other things. So yeah, I mean, we're doing pretty good with it and just kind of, I don't know, you start to think about transitioning at some point in your life into retirement, but then we also were like, we're kind of getting old to be running around looking for sheds too but yeah it's a it's a good way to get out in the spring and you know the competition out there has gotten to be pretty pretty uh hectic over the years but I mean we we pretty much wait until later you know April and May after the elk have kind of we're not harassing them too much and there's still some antlers out there I mean these guys kind of start chasing them a little early nowadays and push them in a little deeper. So, but yeah, we're still, still out there finding antlers and it's a good way to get out and in the spring. And, um, we've got a, another little lab out here. She's not nearly as good as Bella, but, um, we probably might not have another dog quite that good to find some antlers, but yeah, it, it's it's funny. As soon as you started talking about it, I started like in my mind um, with my mom doing some agility with her dogs. I know a lot of her trials that those antler chews are sold and it's like, man, you, it, it seems pretty lucrative, right? Like you got this free yeah. antler. I mean, obviously, you know, your yeah. time costs money, but it's lucrative. But then when you said try to sell antlers to offset the cost of, of three knee <laughs> surgeries and abscess, like, yeah, no, not definitely not as lucrative <laughs> when you're comparing no. those costs. <laughs> No, no, she was pretty spendy. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that that that's great. I mean, I, as someone who has bird dogs, um, you know, I love seeing my dogs, um, you know, have a job and lo yeah. love what they're doing. And you know, if you know, you're not going to use your dog as I would, you know, to to bird hunt. Having an you know a shed dog like that, like that's awesome. That's obviously, as you're saying, I mean, she's digging them out of the ground. It's obviously something that she loves to do. Uh, oh, so you know, being able to see that just joy on their face when they're doing those activities, I mean, that's that's just awesome in and of itself. 
Yeah, she she was over one time. It was pretty snowy where we were at, and I saw her over under a tree, and she wouldn't come to me. She wouldn't come to me, which wasn't super uncommon, but um, she was under this tree, and I finally I walked over, and sure enough, there was a nice uh, mule deer antler, and it was frozen into the ground under the tree, and she just couldn't get it, and she was just pawing at it, trying to get it out, trying to get it out, and oh man, I took me a while to get it out. I was like, chop it out for her because she would not leave it alone. So yeah, just stubborn. Oh man. All right. Let's go back to the beginning. Um, if someone is interested in working in national parks, uh, yeah. where can they find more information? Who can they re reach out to that kind of stuff? Yeah. So our website's zantera.com and there's a career section there. So it lists all of our job opportunities. Um, the other thing I like to tell people, you know, like if you think like maybe I want to work for the park service someday, I always say like this is a great opportunity for somebody coming out of high school that, that doesn't know what they want to do because A, we have all these different jobs that they might be able to try. But also if you're thinking you might want to work for the park service, I always say, you know, like working for us is kind of a good entryway just kind of come in, you work, you get to see all the different park service positions that they offer too, because they're very much, you know, they have a huge scope of things too that people don't think about. You know, they have accountants and they've got, you know, customer service type people, they have maintenance people too. So um, always, you know, getting your foot in the door in one of the parks and just seeing how it operates is just a great way to um, do it. And then with the housing piece, you get to come out here and you don't have to worry about it. And if it's not for you, it's not for you, but it's certainly um, a lot of people enjoy it. Yeah. And I'm sure there, there are some networking opportunities too, right? Mm -hmm. um, you're going to be able to, to talk to park rangers and, and supervisors yeah. and that kind of thing that you can sort of get your name out there uh, if you yes. are interested in it. Yep. All right. We will, I will definitely make sure everyone listening, you can just look in the episode notes and you can see that link there to make a, a real quick transition over. Uh, Wendy, thanks for, for coming on and talking about this. This is uh, some great information for, I thought it was going to be great for, for the listeners. Turns out it's going to be great for me in my <laughs> retirement. So I appreciate this conversation. Yeah. Let me know when you apply. Well, we'll make sure you, you get in somewhere. <laughs> Before we keep going, a real quick question for you. Are you concerned with urban sprawl? Are you concerned with the threat of our increased human presence as put on wildlife and wild spaces? If so, an easy next step for you to try to help with this situation is to visit our Patreon page and become a monthly supporter. If you like this podcast, if you would like to help form a new nonprofit that helps combat and mitigate the effects of urbanization, visit patreon.com slash conserve the wild. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash conserve the wild. Go visit today and become a sponsor. And there it is, another episode and another great guest. Big thank you. Shout out to Wendy for coming on and talking about different ways to get involved working in a national park. 
not something that was at top of mind before she had reached out and, you know, sort of let me know about this other option uh, that some of my high school students might be interested in. And I have already passed some of that information on to them. Big thank you to you for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, if you have some time, I would even greatly uh, appreciate even more uh, if you could just submit a little review on the podcast listening app of your choice. Uh, we've gotten a couple recently, and I really appreciate all the kind words that I've, I've heard. Uh, maybe you have some terrible words for me. That's fine. Uh, you can tell me the show's great. The host is awesome. I won't hold you hold that against you. Uh, just shoot me a review and uh, you know let other people know word of mouth. Uh, is the way that we've grown this podcast and we're going to continue to grow it. And we appreciate everyone's work spreading, you know, the, the information that they, you know, the knowledge that they like this, this podcast. So I appreciate all of that. You know, until next week when we have another great guest on, Drew Youngdike, you'll get to meet him. Until then, get outside, take someone with you, and stay wild.